Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Anyways, we got to get into chapter 4. All right. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. What ministry does he have? Spreading the gospel, right? The new covenant, the ministry of the new covenant. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but my manifestation of the truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Here's what Paul. Here's the big point Paul's saying there. We're not like those people that twist and deceive and manipulate the message. But rather, we are committing ourselves to every man's conscience. What is the conscience? The highest standard, right? Paul's saying, I'm not scurrying around in the background coming up with this stuff. I'm not handling the Word of God deceitfully. In other words, I'm not trying to twist it to make it mean something that I want it to mean. All right? It's all out in the open. Um, I'd have to look up the um, the actual Greek term. I think Paul's saying, I'm, commend, I'm presenting myself. I'm He's, he's not committing himself in the sense of a prideful commendation. But Paul is saying, I am presenting myself openly as one who is not twisting, deceiving, distorting the message. He's not, he's not compromising. He's not compromising. Right. Right. Yeah. Not and see, and see, that's the one I thing. That's Absolutely, and the thing he's trying to, and I think another point that that underlies this is Paul is saying, I'm not hiding anything. I am what I am. Um, that's one of the things I think as Christians we need to do. Sometimes we should keep our mouths shut because we say this, we're gonna get everybody riled up. Well, you don't want to be abrasive about it, but there's an appropriate forum where to be a person of integrity, people have to know where you stand on things. And, and when you want, when you when you change where you stand because somebody might like or not like you because of that, you're not being a person of integrity. Paul is saying, "I'm not twisting it. I'm presenting it without without any any veneer of deceit on it." All right, and I'm not trying to hide it. Rather, if the gospel is hid, who's it hid to? In verse three, if the gospel is hid. Why is it hid? Is it hid because I'm sneaking around or I'm, I'm handling it deceitfully? No, it's veiled to those who are lost. Those who are perishing. 
why is it that the world, why is it that you can go on Larry King Live and tell him the gospel and he laughs at you? He's perishing. What do you expect? And we say, oh, it's awful he does it. What do you expect? Right? What do you expect from the world? If you stand up in the workplace and say, you know, I think, I think, you know, you should wait and, until marriage before you have physical relations. People look at you like you're some alien from a planet, Pluto or something like that, you know. And it's like, and you say, oh, that's horrible. They think that. Well, why not? What does the world say? What's the message of the world? If the gospel is hid, it's not hid because I've hidden it. It's not hid because I'm not clear about it. It's hid because their hearts are blind. All right. Now, turn this into your witnessing. All right. One of the great problems we have today is there are people that want to violate, I think, the scripture, the spirit of the scripture by saying, well, you know, if I stand up and I present the gospel as it is presented in the New Testament, no one's going to be saved. So I need to somehow make it a, a little bit easier for them to swallow. You know, maybe maybe I need to take the castor oil and mix a little bit of sugar with it or What's that? A little bit of sugar makes the medicine go down, or something like that. Um, or I got to alter it, or I, I, you know, man, you know, this this God, God of wrath, you know, boy, you know, that's not gonna, that's not gonna fly. You know, let's make him a, more of a loving God, you know, that kind of thing. What are you doing? You're altering it, and you're polluting it. You're you're being one of these who handle the word of God deceitfully. Because you're not telling people what it says. Folks, did Christ water the gospel down? When that rich young ruler came and said, what must I do to be saved? What did Christ tell him? Go sell it all. And the guy said, no. And that was the last you heard of him. The guy said, I'll follow you, but let me go uh, say bye to mom and dad. Forget it. If you look, put your hand on the palm, look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. I don't want you. Let me go bury my father first. Nope. Let the dead bury the dead. The whole point here. Pardon? It is, well, Christ never lowered. Christ did not want somebody to come to him who wasn't willing to pay the price. The Marine Corps, do they want any wimp on the block to show up? No, they'll wash you out, right? Only a few good men. You want to be part of the Marine Corps. And if you want to get in the Green Berets or the SEALs, you know, not many people make it there. Why? There's a high standard. You don't want somebody who comes into that that just, you know, wants to wear the night little neat little cap thing, you know. You want somebody who's willing to pay the price to be there. Christ is saying, you want to follow me? You better be willing to pay the price. What is the price? All that you are. You better lay it on the line. You want to follow me? Okay, fine. It's going to cost you everything. And if you're not willing to do that, I don't want you. Yeah, if you're not going to deny yourself. And whenever we try to water the gospel down to make it palatable to a lost and dying world, we're not doing them a favor. Because why is the gospel hid? Is the gospel hid... Read this passage. Is the gospel hid because we've not figured out their felt need? Is the gospel hid because we don't have the proper technique? 
Is the gospel hid because we didn't, you know, do the right music video or have the right skit? Why is the gospel hid? Because the God of this world has blinded their minds. Therefore, how are they going to see? God's got to do the work. And, and being good Calvinists, as you all ought to be now, nothing you can do will keep an elect person out of heaven. And nothing you do will get an, a non-elect person in. All right? You don't have to worry about watering the gospel down for fear that somehow if you don't, that person's going to reject Christ. Look, if they're one of the elect, it doesn't matter what you tell them. If, if they're one of the elect, you tell them, if you're going to take Jesus Christ now and you're saved, five seconds later, I'm going to take you out that door and shoot you. They'll, they'll be saved. It ain't going to stop them. All right? And Paul is saying, I'm not like those that peddle. Remember you used kapolos? I'm not like those that peddle this word. I'm not like those that try to tickle your ears or change the message or make you like it. You know, and that's the problem we have today. The great pressure in the church today is this come up with a gospel that doesn't freak out the sinner. And the problem is the gospel, if presented correctly, will do what? Freak out the sinner. It's supposed to. Now, I'm not talking about being abrasive or unloving or, you know, you know, like some of these guys are. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about giving the truth. No, that'd probably not be a good thing to do. You know, although it's true, although it's a true statement, you know. And 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 their minds, the God of this world has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. Why don't they believe? Because the God of this world has blinded their minds. Therefore, how are they going to see? God's got to unblind their mind. It's not you. If you present the gospel to someone and they don't believe, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. They may believe them. And by the way, if someone does respond and become a believer, it's not to your credit either. You just happen to be there. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. I got my Bible signed by John MacArthur. And guess what verse? Well, he used Joshua 1 8 here. I got one where he used Vance Havner used 2 Corinthians 4 5. I don't preach myself, but Christ Jesus. And what are we? We're just slaves. We're just bondservants. We're nothing. I'm not preaching myself. Here, that's another way to pick out a false prophet. Who's he trying to exalt, himself or Christ? Look at some of these boys, you know, and they're trying to exalt themselves. You know, if, if something happened to them, the kingdom of God's going to come crashing down. You know, the word of God's going to be derailed. The mission of God is going to be set back. God doesn't need any of them. He doesn't need you and he doesn't need me either. It's going to work just fine. Paul's saying, I'm not preaching myself. I'm preaching Jesus Christ, what? The Lord. It's all about him. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is verse 6 telling you? 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of them that don't believe. So how do they believe? It is the God who does what? Shines the light in and opens their eyes so they can believe. It's not you. It really isn't. It's not you. God is the one who calls out of man's light to shine on darkness and shown in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You're blinded by Satan, but God can shine the light in and bring the light. And who does the shining? Holy Spirit does. God does, not you. You preach Jesus Christ and let God do the shining of the light. You don't need to worry about, someone said, my job, I'm like a waiter. My job is to get the meal to the table without dumping it on the floor. I didn't make the meal. I didn't cook it. All right? But I can mess it up on the way to the table. My job is to get the meal from the chef to the table without messing it up. Our job is to get the message of the gospel from God to the sinner without altering it. You come in with blood all over your back all week, you know. Yeah. And there's a time, you know, there's a time when the club needs to come out. There's another time when the love of God needs to come out. I mean, you see both of those. I mean, did Christ pull out the board? How did Christ deal with the woman taking adultery? How did he deal with the woman who came in and broke the alabaster box? And how did he deal with the kids that, you know, that's one of the kids want to hang around Christ. Now, what kind of guy was he? The kids loved him. You know? The point is this. Don't alter the message. Present it. Let God do the work. Let God worry about the heart, the conviction. God will take care of that. You don't alter the message. Don't change it. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be guiding on us. What are you? Well, you're a clay pot. <coughs> the word here, these are clay earthenware vessels. And they used them for all kinds of things in those days. Some were used to put fruits in, to store valuables in. Others were used for chamber pots to take the waste out. Which one do you think Paul's talking about here? Chamber pot. We have this treasure in clay pots. Why is it so that the power is God and not us? Here's the point. Understand what he's trying to say here a little bit too. And I think this is, he's ending at this. If you present the gospel in all your erudition, and that person becomes a Christian, what do you think sometimes? You did it. You didn't do it. You're a clay pot. And the more you can get yourself out of the way, and the more you can just share what God has said, 
people will respond. When you You can you can you can rejoice in that, but realize that even that is God just using you. It's not you. Um, and that way, you know, remember what Paul said earlier on in Corinth, I came knowing nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Why? So that when you responded to the gospel, I wouldn't think that somehow I talked you into it. Because if I if I came in as a bumbling idiot and you believe, then I would know that it was God doing it and not me doing it. And that's what he's getting at here. It's not the power of, it's not the power of the preacher. If you're a sower and you throw seed on the ground, why does the seed grow? Because you are a sower? No, because it's the power within the seed that grows. You just happen to toss it there. It's not you. You didn't grow a garden. God did. You just happened to put the seeds in there. But God caused the growth. Verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. This is the Prozac verse of the New Testament. Paul's saying I'm crushed, but I'm not squeezed to death. Hard-pressed on every side. I can't remember the Greek words underneath this. They're really fascinating and cool Greek words. The idea there is being squeezed. He says, I'm squeezed, but I'm not crushed. Now, what kind of squeezing do you think he's talking about? Well, emotional, spiritual, persecution, the, the pressures. He says, as a Christian, I am pressed, but I'm not crushed. He says, um, we're plexed, but not in despair. I can't remember if it's this one or the next one there. talks about uh, the word there is used of, a, of, a, of a, a lion running after prey. He says, I'm being chased by the lion, but I've not been caught. All right. He says, I'm persecuted. I'm crushed down, but God has not forsaken me. And I'm on the mat, but I'm not knocked out. Why, why does God bring us to the end of ourselves? <clears throat> to rely on Him, and it's not of you, it's of Him. And he says, I'm always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so that death is working in us, but life in you. Paul, you know, he looked at Paul, and here's one of the other things that the, the Corinthian detractors were doing. Well, you know, look at Paul. He's, the guy's been beat up. He's been thrown out of town. And, you know, that's obviously God judging him because he's just not what he ought to be. And see, that's the kind of drivel you get on some of the TBN TV today where, well, if you're suffering or you've got a problem, or you've got some ailment that you don't have the faith. Somehow it's, a, it's your fault that you didn't believe God or somehow you didn't latch on to some promise. Or it's, it's all your fault. What is Paul? Paul's here saying, I am distressed, but I'm not forsaken. I'm not been, I'm on the mat, but I'm not knocked out. Why? Because that's when God's strength is seen in me. God's strength is evidenced in my weakness, not in my strength. If you got some preacher that just skates above the clouds and never has a problem in his life and, and all that, what, 
where does the glory go? And, and, and in fact, later on, Paul says, I've got this thorn in the flesh. Why? A messenger of Satan to buffet me, to make me realize it's not me. It's God. Yeah. And, and I'm bearing about in my body daily the dying of a... I, Paul wasn't much to look at. Guy got beat up all the time. He had scars. You know, we think beating with rods, oh, you know, that's not too bad. Look, that left scars on you that never went away. This guy was beat up. He had broken bones. He was three days and nights in the in the sea, and on on he got stoned and thrown out of the town, dead on the garbage heap, and you know everything. I, and he's saying all that shows that the more I'm crushed down, the more the power of God is evidenced in my life. It, it's a, it's an inverse relationship, and. and Paul is saying, I'm bearing about. Why? So that God might be seen in me. I'm a clay pot. That's all I am. The treasure is in a clay pot. The clay pot is not valuable because it's a clay pot. It's valuable because of what's in it. You're not valuable because of you. You're valuable because of what's in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. That's going back to the book of Psalms. And basically Paul's saying, I have confidence that God is going to do what God is going to do. I'm going to win. It doesn't look too good for me now, right? <clears throat> I'm beat down. You know, it's like the, you know, the old, uh, you know, the old Horatio Alger series. You know, the guy's on the tracks, the train's about ready to come, and you think he's done for, but you don't know that he's going to win, right? He's going to win. I think it's Psalms. Um, Psalms there that's talking about Psalm 116.10 um, is a quotation there. It, uh, yeah, if he had an authorized version. No, it's, uh, but, uh, yeah, we give him a hard time there. But, because uh, then he says, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up with Jesus and will present us with you. So Paul says, it doesn't look very good now, but the same power that raised up Jesus from the dead is going to do what with us? Raise us up. Doesn't look good now. It's not supposed to look good now because the worse I look, the more God's power is seen in me. Let me ask a question. When have you felt closest to God? When everything's going great, wonderful, hunky-dory, or when you're going through a trial? Yeah. You're going through the trial. Paul's saying, I have confidence that although I'm on the mat, I'm not knocked out, God's going to raise me up. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and see, that's we got to understand, and that's what's coming up here. We see a little piece, we see a little slice of eternity here. And what gives us as Christians the ability to handle the garbage of this life? This isn't all there is. Thank goodness. This isn't all there is. There's something better coming. I'm not preaching. That's what the, I'm going with the text is saying here. It's not me. Read the, read the, read the verse. 
Because that's what he says in verse 16. I don't lose heart. Therefore, I do not, we do not lose heart. Why? Because God's going to raise us up off the mat. It looks bad for us. It looks like things aren't going our way. But there's a better day coming. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Outwardly, we're wearing down. We're wearing out. But the inward man, the spiritual man, is being renewed by who? God. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Out of lamentations. And I like verse 17. Our light affliction. Our light affliction. Did Paul have light? You know, you know when you looked at Paul and you looked at all the garbage and all the stuff he went through, he said, eh, this is light affliction. You say, it doesn't look too light to me. <laughs> Paul, you got stoned, remember? A couple months ago, you're stoned from out of the city for dead? Ah, that's light affliction. That's nothing. What gives him the right to say it's light affliction? Because what are you comparing it to? Eternity. Light affliction. Which is what? For a moment. You say, well, my moments lasted 20 years. Folks, compared to eternity, that's a moment. What gives you, here's the point, what gives you the ability to handle the garbage of life. This isn't all there is. How do the pagans live? No wonder they're drinking alcohol. They should. You know, no wonder they're taking drugs. They should. I would be too. If that's if this is all I had, I'd be on Prozac and having a martini every night. Good night. I mean, if this is all there was, what gives me the ability to handle? What gives us the ability as believers to handle the pain and the anguish and the garbage and the trials and tribulations of this life? It's light affliction, it's but a moment, and it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's interesting. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What's Paul saying here? He's saying your ability to glorify God in heaven is directly proportional to how much you suffer in this world. And I often thought that sometimes when we get to heaven, we might ask God, why didn't I suffer more? Yeah, well, you're not supposed to do that. What's wrong with you? You got some martyr complex? No, all Paul is saying here is what? The more people suffer, the more they can bring glory to God, Right? How, why was Christ exalted above every name? Because he gave up the most, right? You say, well, you know, like Peter said, you know, Lord, we've left all and followed thee. What do you give up? Well, a bunch of nets, a leaky boat, you know, not much, right? What did Christ give up? He gave the glory of heaven. Christ was face to face with the Father from eternity past. You understand that? No, you don't, because you're you got a pea brain like me. You can't figure it out. He was face to face, proston fan, face to face with the Father from eternity past. And he voluntarily gave that up and walked with a bunch of ingrateful vermin for from his, you know. From, and, and, who, who who nailed him on a cross to kill him because they didn't like him. Why? To save them. 
Because he gave up the most, God gave him the greatest glory. You're going to say. I hadn't thought about that just the other day, how, you know, Christ experienced and if, if you really read between the lines in John 17, he was looking forward to anticipation, his return to the Father. You know, he was looking forward to the cross as to finally I get this thing over with so I get back to be face to face with you from eternity past. And not only that, but I get to bring some people with me. Us. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. In John 17. He's saying it's it's just a light, it's light affliction, it's for a moment. It's working for me far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Look around us. You know, everything you touch here is temporary. It's all temporary. That nice new car you bought, it's going to be rust in about 20 years. Right? That nice house you got, it's going to be junk. Right? That nice new computer you bought, it's obsolete today after tomorrow. There's a faster one out. Everything we have is... Temporary, right? It's all temporary. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But what is not seen is eternal. What are you investing in? You know, God calls us to be wise stewards of our finances and to invest and take care of so we have something to live on when we get old and we can't work. God wants us to do that. But God wants to invest in eternity too, right? Lay up for yourselves treasure in Heaven. Look for the eternal. Get, get an eternal perspective. And one of the things that enables you to deal with the problems of life is that this isn't it. When Donna lost her brother a few weeks ago, it was a, it was a tragedy to her. It, it was painful. But, she, but what got her through that and what sustains her and her mom is, this is temporary. You know, someday we're going to be with them. You know, it's a pain right now. It's the loss right now. But, you know, slight affliction. It's but for a moment. And someday there will be a grand reunion. And like Donna said, there's going to come a day when we don't have to say goodbye and go home. We're going to be home. You know. Peter uses that. You're a stranger. You're an alien. You know, you're an alien on this planet. We're aliens. We don't we don't belong here. And you know what? The more I watch TV and the more I see the things of the world, the more I realize I really don't belong here. You know, I don't share anything in common. Look at Britney Spears. What a ditch. My daughter, Alex. You know, what a ditch. You know, here's a woman... Here's a woman from, from, from the world's perspective. She's, she's beautiful. She's wealthy. She can sing. And her life is a total wreck. Well, some say she can sing. And she's famous. And her life is a total, total wreck. And nothing, nothing she values is anything I value. 
nothing you know, really nothing the world values is what we value you know I mean, I, I was out at Hollywood and Vine last weekend, you know, where, where the stars are on a walk. You know what people are doing? Walking over them. The stars on a walk, so what? I don't value, are you going to value that? Oh, I got my name on a star on the walk. Yeah, people walk over. And by the way, it's a pretty rough area of the town. Yeah. And right around the corner, you can go into the, uh, what was it? The, um, the Cave Girls Adult Entertainment thingy majiggy there or something like that and we count about 10 lingerie stores in two blocks I mean that's 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 what the world values there's the value of the world right there you know um, we don't well, we don't value, but, but, but you look at that, you, I remember Gary and I we, we drove down it's interesting just go down by the Chinese theater you know they have all the big you know things and we got back and said, you know, Gary, I didn't see anything there I wanted. Just like Soviet Union, you know, have to clash the police. The Lenin statue have that time. People, they idle, you know. Yeah. Communists and Lenin. And the point is... After clash the communist country. Yeah. What do you value? Do you value things of the world that are temporary? temporary? Can you give the names of the guys who won the 1985 World Championship World Series? You probably can, I know. Can you name all nine of them on the team or whatever? Can you name the winning pitcher? Can you name, you know, that, you know, I don't even know who, who won the World Series in 85, you know? Yeah, see, he's got, he's got, he's got all, he's got all of them on the wall. Yeah, yeah. But, but the whole point, the whole point is, yeah, the, the whole point is everything the world values is temporary. It doesn't last. The fast cars, the big houses, the fame, the looks doesn't last. We're not looking at the things which are temporary. We're looking at the things which are, at least that's what we should be doing. For we know, verse 5, that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. If I die, what happens? I get a new house. A new tent, Paul talks about. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Anybody groan in their current body? Yeah, it's limited, right? <laughs> Things that used to work don't, you know. Um, and I'm told the older you get, the more of those things start not working, you know. Um, Paul said, you know, and see, look, look, how much money is spent on our physical life. I, I was cruising the channels, and there's a show. Was it Nip Tuck? It's about plastic surgery or something. I think it is. You know, people spending millions of dollars to enhance various portions of their body. 
I mean, it sounds a little gross. I was looking, I was watching a CSI and they had this, this, this woman that was killed and they were able to identify her from her butt implants. It's not breast implants anymore. Now they can put butt implants in to make your butt look right. And I never heard of that. And I'm like, and that's strange, you know. But, but that's... Extreme makeover or something? Ambush. You know, look, look, at, look at the world, what it does to make our, to, for stuff that's perishing. It's going away, folks. We're dying, all of us. That doesn't mean we look horrid and gross and don't take care of us. But it's just like, folks, you know what? Yeah. That reminds me of a... <laughs> this this is a <laughs> I heard I had a story about this guy that got married to this beautiful woman and um you know when when they went back and uh we're gonna go to go to bed that night she uh, took off her wig and threw it in the drawer and she took off her eyelashes and threw them in there and she took out her false teeth and tossed them in there and she took out her false leg and Cosmer finally guy just said, Fui, and he just jumped in the drawer, you know. <laughs> but, uh, just, you know? Um, we, we don't know. The point is, we, we laugh at this, but, but look at the sadness of the world. Just, just look at what's valued on television and TV and, and, and the values that people have. That's all passing away. It's all temporary. It's going away. And, and why do we as Christians allow ourselves to get sucked into that? Same mentality. You know, Paul saying my tent is going to go away. It, it's getting older. It's it's going to be, it's decaying. My no matter what I do to my physical self, it's going to decay. And it's harder to keep it up. It's interesting. I was reading us Lenin. We're talking about the collapse of communism. They, you know, they have a whole professional cast of people that maintain his body in the, wherever it was over in. They had they literally take it out and, and, and you know, your full-time job is keeping that guy looking fresh. And the guy's been dead for, what, 80 years now or something like that. And they've got a whole team of morticians and, and uh, you know, makeup artists and cosmetic people and scientists working to keep him looking like he was when he was alive. Still. Still. No, I mean, it, it, it was a special on History Channel about all that they go through to, to do this. Yeah, even now. Folks, yeah. But you don't want them to look like a mummy. You know, all stretched out. They want them to look, yeah. It, it's interesting how, but they, they have all, they have a humidity control and, you know, chemicals. And I mean, it's just a whole big rigmarole to keep this guy looking fresh. You know, um, folks, our body's going away. And Paul's saying, if I, if I lose my body, you know what? I have one in heaven. A better one than the one I got here. If indeed having been clothed, we should not be found naked. For we are in this tent grown being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing as God was also given us the spirit as a guarantee. If this clay pot gets broken, I've got a better one coming. And how do I know that? The spirit is a guarantee. What does it mean the spirit is a guarantee? 
Seal of ownership. Said we are seal. Seals meant a lot of things in those days, but one of the things that seal meant was ownership. Right? I got a little book embosser that my wife got me. You know, and if I if I put a little thing on my yeah, I put a little thing on that embosses that that book is mine. It's, it's got my seal on it. It belongs to me. You know, when when a man loves a woman and wants to marry, what does he give her? Everything. No, what does he give her? A ring. What does that ring say? It's a pledge. We're not married yet, but I promise myself to you. And in turn, she promises herself to that man. It's it's a down payment. You, you don't have the full deal at that point. You're not married, but it's a pledge that there's something coming. Paul is saying the Holy Spirit was given to us as what? A pledge. There's something better coming. How do you know you've got something better coming? I've got the Spirit now. He's my down payment. He's the Erebon, as it says in Ephesians 1, which means engagement ring, pledge, down payment, surety. How do I know God's going to fulfill his promises? He's given me a down payment. And by the way, it's an irrevocable down payment. I can't give it back and he won't take it back. The idea there is that when we die and we lose this body, we have another body. We're not found unclothed. Is the, the imagery he's pulling us out there. So verse 6, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. While we're, while we're down here, we're absent from God in the sense that we can't enjoy all that God has for us. But someday, we will die and we will be in God's presence. And we will enjoy fully everything that he has for us. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says, you know, I'd much rather be dead and be with Christ. Think about it. Would you rather go to work tomorrow or enjoy the presence of God tomorrow? Yeah, we sometimes look at death or Christ coming back as an interruption to our plans. Doesn't interrupt any of mine. Of course, I would like the Indians to win the big game once before he comes. Will we have the same body in heaven as we do in the eternal state? Um, well, there's an intermediate, there's an intermediate body, and God's not filled us in on all the details of that. Evidently, there is an intermediate body. If we were to die tonight, we would go to heaven. We would be able to recognize one another. Um, we'd look a lot better than we probably do now, but we'd be able to pick each other out. Um, but then there's a resurrection body that's fitted for eternity that we will get. First Corinthians 15 talks about that. Yeah. Well, it's just a form. It's it's just the, you know. You you're not a spirit, right? God is spirit. What's a spirit? Invisible. We are not spirit beings in a sense of invisibility. We have a material nature to us. Now there's a spiritual component of that that we don't see from this world, all right, but it's there nevertheless. 
And and the God's not gave us all the details on how that all works and what it looks like in that. He's just not told us that. But evidently, for example, when uh, the rich man and Lazarus, that whole account there, they were able to recognize one another. They knew who each other was. Um, when Moses and Elijah showed up on Transfiguration, Peter knew who they were. They didn't have name tags, but he could pick them out, who they were. Um, they had some kind of physical form. Now, was it a physical form like we have flesh and blood, solid? No. Um, Christ's resurrection body was a solid? Well, yes, but it was also a spirit body and how that all works and what plane of existence. And it's all Star Trekish, you know, sort of a little bit. There are souls under the altar. Yes. And we will, your body will be like the one you have now. I'll be able to recognize you for who you are, you know, um, but it'll be a perfect body suited for heaven. Therefore, we make it our aim, verse 9, whether present or absent, to be well-pleased in him. Here's Paul's whole point. You know, if I had my choice, I'd rather be absent and be with him, but I need to be with you. So whether I'm absent or present, what do I want to do? I want to please him. That's his brothers, but he says whether I'm absent or present, whether I'm absent or present, I want to be well-pleasing to God. As long as God has ordained that I be here with you, I'm going to be here with you, and I'm going to be well-pleasing to him. All right? And, and that's, that's an interesting point here. Going back to the whole uh, discussion of um, legalism, we should want to please God, not just keep the rules, right? Not just keep the rules. If, if one of the chores for your son is to take the garbage out, it's one thing for him to just keep the rule and do it. It's another thing for him to joyfully do that out of appreciation for what you've done for him and to... You know, which son would you rather have? The one who just obeys you because mechanically or the one that does it because they want to, because of their heart? That's what God wants. Does God want our obedience? Well, yeah, but not just our obedience. He wants our heart. And that's what it means when it says in First John, the command, his commandments are not grievous. And what sense are his commandments not grievous? Look, if you love the God, if you're totally, deeply, madly in love with God, it's not a burden for you to please him. It's not. It's a joy. And what commandments he has are not burdensome. They are joyous to do. There are things that Donna, want, that Donna would like me to do, but I find it a joy to do. Why? Because I love her so much. It's not a burden to me. Other people look at me saying, why in the world are you doing that? I'd never do that. Well, that's fine because you don't love her like I do. And I'm willing to do that because I love her and I want to please her. I want to. That's part of what, it, what it's all about. Do you love God? If you love God, you're going to please him. You're going to want to make him happy. You're not going to need a rule. You're going to be looking at how can I make him happy. And it goes beyond the rule and beyond rote and mechanical obedience. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror or the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, for, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. This is one of the couple of passages in the Bible talk about the judgment seat of Christ. It's here, um, 1 Corinthians 3, Romans 14. What is the judgment seat? Bema. And what was the bema? The bema was where you went to receive your reward. You run a race, you, you, you win a prize, and you go there to get your 
reward. The bema, you know, people have this idea, well, when I stand before God, he's going to show me how awful, rotten, cruddy I am. Show me all my sins. Is he? Why not? He forgot about him. Why did he forget about him? Because he's forgetful? He chose not to. God's not forgetful. God chose not to. He's removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west and buries them in the bottoms of the deepest sea. Um, when you stand before God, he's not going to look at you and say, uh, let's talk about these uh, sins of yours. If he did, you're in trouble. Why? Because, yeah. Rather, what's he going to do? He's going to give you a reward based on your faithfulness. On what you've done for him. Some of you, or some of us, will receive little. Others may receive a lot. And we must all appear before. Here's the point. Who are we ultimately accountable to? To God. I'm not accountable to you. You understand that. I'm not, you're not going to judge me for anything. God's going to judge me. All right. I want to please him. And we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us is going to receive a reward based on our faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that. A reward for faithfulness. Some of us will get a lot. Some of us will get a little. And it'll be commensurate with what we have done and how faithful we have been. All right? I'm sorry? Well, the judgment seat of Christ is we're going to receive a reward from Christ based on, and by the way, God has committed all judgment to who? The Son. All right. And it's going to be a reward. It's going to be a reward. Understand the, the, the imagery of the Bema seat here is reward. It's not judgment seat in terms of being judged for a crime, a criminal matter. There's no criminality involved in his. What's involved in this is you won first place, you won second place, you won fourth place. Here's your ribbon, your medal, your whatever. It was a, it was a place of reward. We're going to give, receive a reward from Christ on how well we have honored him. And commensurate, too, with our amount of suffering we have done. That's the, that's the great white throne. This is an after rapture, right? Yeah. After rapture, we're talking about the judgment day. Jesus coming in the rapture. Yeah. And he leaves us uh, believers. And we will stand day. before him and receive a reward. Yeah. Believers, yeah. And then he makes a judgment, right? That's the, the, the great white throne is at the end of the millennium. That's later. That's for the unbelievers. No, what I mean is the rapture. Yeah. Between the rapture, after the rapture, we will stand before Christ. We will receive a reward. And we will receive a service. We will receive a position of service based on our faithfulness. It's a judgment seat of Christ. We know. And here's the point. Why is it that you want to please God? There should be. There's. And, and Paul brings this 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 secondary motive in here. There are two reasons we want to please God. Why? Out of what? Out of thankfulness, gratefulness, love. Why else? Mm -hmm. 
No. What's it say? Knowing the. It's right there. What's our secondary motive? The fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? And an reverential awe and respect for God for who he really is. And understanding that we really don't deserve to stand there. <clears throat> we serve God for two reasons. Out of love for him and out of fear. Same thing for a child, right? A child should want to choose to love his parents and obey them out of love for his mom and dad, but also out of respect for who they are and for loss of reward. And one of the things that we've lost in the church today, I think, to a large extent, is we don't really have to fear God. We're really not afraid of him. And one of the things I ask myself, when I see, when I see you know, a good friend of mine you know, uh, who, who taught many years in, with me and, and, and was a good friend of mine, uh, divorced his wife on October 10th and married another woman on October 17th. And I ask myself, isn't he afraid of God? See, God loves us, right? But the same God that loves us is a consuming fire. And the God that's going to welcome us into heaven is going to condemn the bulk of humanity to the lake of fire. He's both pieces. And when we uh, sin and we flaunt his character, it's like, aren't you afraid? And I've known a pastor friend, my friend, a couple friends of mine that said, uh, you know, they were witness, you know, helping somebody with their marriage. And this guy said, I'm leaving my wife. And they said, well, you know, God, God's that's sin. God will judge you. So I'd rather handle the judgment of God than her. Um, and one of the things we have to ask ourselves, are we afraid of God? And that, that's, a, that's a concept we have to keep in tension with the love of God. Because if you go too far on the love side, you become all wishy-washy, lovey-dovey, and, and everything else. If you go too much on the fear of God, you, know, you become a legalist and you're scared to death of your own shadow. You've got to somehow get in the middle there. There's a balance that needs to be, to be achieved. I can come to God. I can come boldly to God's presence because of Christ. But there's the fear of me there that really understands I don't deserve to be there. And God really doesn't owe me anything. I need to fear him. Who does God, uh, what is it, Jeremiah 26, 3. Who does God want? Someone who, who uh, is humble and trembles at his word. I think it's 26, 3. Someone who, who is humble of heart. And trembles at the voice of God. Is the beginning. Yeah. Why is it that? It's the foundation. Yeah, that's the foundation. So fear is not not like too much Right. But it's it's a reverential respect and and understanding that God is holy. You're not. You come on his terms, not your terms. 
That's the that's the thing we got. That's the that's the piece of the gospel message is missing today. We're trying to get people to come to God on their terms. You don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on His terms, and you respect Him for who He is. And Paul's saying we have that fear because that we persuade men. Why? Because we understand the awe, the reverence, the holiness, the majesty of God. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in the heart. I'm not reintroducing myself to you, but I want you to boast of us. In what sense is he talking about boasting of us? It's not, when we see boast, we think of it negatively. But Paul's trying to get them to understand that it's not the externals, it's the internals. There are those who boast in their appearance. They look good, they look slick, they look professional, but there's nothing behind them. And it's, it's almost like the Pharisees of Matthew 23, right? Christ says, you know what? You guys are like whitewashed tombs. I want by Forest Lawn Cemetery. There's some really interesting things in there, some beautiful mausoleums. The one has the, the, the biggest mural of the Last Supper. You know, it's, it's like 150 feet wide. It's a huge thing. But you know what's behind all that beautiful white marbles? Dead flesh, rotting. And that's what Christ talked to Pharisees. You know, you guys look really good on the outside. You know, you look beautiful and, and all that. But, you know, inside you're, you're rotten. You're, you're decaying bones. And Paul's saying, there are those that commend themselves externally. I want you to commend us, not because of what we did externally, but because of what we did internally, our character our hearts, the way we minister to you. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are sound of mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because this is what we judge. That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What compels me? Paul saying, what is, what is the compelling driving engine of my life and ministry? It is the love of God. It's the love of Christ because why? How, how do I know that he loved me? He died for me. That's the compelling motivation of my life. It's the message of the gospel. He died for me. And if one died for all, then all died. Paul says, I, I'm dead. He died for me. I'm no different than you are. If those who should live should live no longer live what for themselves. Paul said, you know, I'm not living for myself. I'm living for God. You know, you don't belong to you, right? You don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And that's what Romans 7 says, right? You're a slave. You know, every human being on the planet is a slave to one of two things. Sin to death of obedience to life. You know that, right? Now, you're, you're, now the, the world says, well, I don't want to become a Christian. You know, I want to be free. Free for what? Is Britney Spears free to do anything she wants? No, she's free to do whatever goes along with her corrupt nature, right? The same with the rest of them. I'm just using her as an example, but, you know, anybody, you know, the, the people in the world say, well, you know, I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to obey God because I'm free to do what I want. Well, no, you're not really free to do what you want because what you want to do is the wrong stuff. You're not really free. You're bound 
by your nature. You're bound by what you are. Only Christ brings true freedom. And Paul's saying, I am freed from sin so that I can do what? Become a slave to God. I can do what God wants me to do. I can become a slave to him. And I don't live for myself. I live for Christ. And the imagery here is, is phenomenal. It's the idea of being brought out of slavery and set free. And Paul say, I've been set free and now I'm free to serve Christ. And I'm not in this for myself. I'm not in it for my own personal gain. It's not for what I get out of the ministry. It's what I can put into it. Which is, by the way, another way you can spot a false teacher. Is he in a ministry for what he gets out of it or for what he can give? Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, one of the great verses of the Bible He's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. One of the messages that Paul constantly proclaims and is leaking out here very clearly is this. The God that saves you transforms you. All right. Don't fall into the trap of somebody who says, yeah, you know, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, you know, 50 years ago or 25 years ago, I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart. Well, you know, you go to church. Nah, I've been in church for 25 years. Hang around other Christians. No, I can't stand. They're all hypocrites. You read the Bible? No, I don't read the Bible. In fact, I don't even think I have a Bible in the house anymore. It's under my stack of Playboys, if I do. They're, they're kidding themselves. You know what? If you're, if, you're a new, if you're a Christian, you are different. In fact, how do you know you're a Christian? By your fruit, by your changed life. We're not talking about perfection here. We know that, right? No one's perfect. Nor are we talking about you're saved by your works. The only way you can do good works is you're saved. But what Paul is saying is if you are in Christ, you are a brand new. And the word new here, there's two words for new in the New Testament. There's new in time and new in quality. What do you th which one do you think Paul's using here? Quality. You're not new in time. Someone says, I don't have a new page in an old book. I've got a brand new book. God saved you. Why did God save you? Did God save you so you can go and sin? Christ comes to this world, hang on a cross to save you from your sin, only tell you, all right, now that I've forgiven you, you're going to heaven, uh, yeah, go out and have some fun. Go sin. Doesn't matter to me any. Yeah. Romans 5, Romans 6. You died, and now you're raised to walk in newness of life. Folks, you are a new creation. You're not the same old person you used to be. You're bothering. And now, that doesn't mean there's no struggle. What is your struggle with? Flesh. You understand you don't have two natures. You don't have an old and new nature. Now, that's tossed around a lot in churches today. Well, you know, your old man is fighting with your new man. You know, that's like the, and he said, well, you know, I have a white dog and a black dog. And the one that wins, I tell him sick it to, you know, and look, that's that's bad theology. The theology of the Bible is when you become a Christian, you have been completely transformed. You have. But you're stuck with yet your fallen human, human, humanist, which is your flesh. 
And what's going to happen to that flesh someday? It's going back to where it came from, the dust. And then you will no longer have the lusts and limitations and the desires that we have that we struggle with constantly as believers. We won't have that. Paul says if, you're, if you've been born in, you are a brand new creation in Christ. You're completely different. You're not the same. So quit acting like it. Quit acting like your old self. That's really the message of Romans 7. Paul says, you know, I, I, I'm new. I want to do the right, you know, I want to serve the Lord with my mind, but my flesh, I can't do a thing with it. It's like your hair. I can't do a thing with it, you know. I'm sorry? Today's preaching, I'll always be one of the top jobs. Mm-hmm. Folks, Christ, we, the grace that saved you completely transformed you, gave you a new nature. You don't have two natures. You've got a brand new nature. Ask yourself in the quiet of the night when you're looking at yourself in the mirror, do you want to please God? Yeah, why is that? You're, you're, you're new. Now, when the pagan looks in the mirror, do they want to please God? No. You're new. Your struggle is you've got to lug this flesh around, and that's, that keeps you, that's dragging you down. I'm sorry, you're going to... In your nature, how is that related to the spirit of Christ in us? Is that somehow related, or is that a separate thing? Um... Well, the, the Holy Spirit is separate. It's not, not you. But what God does is God transforms. What is your nature? What's your nature? When we talk about nature, what, is, what are we talking about here? Nature. Hmm? You're, you're, you're getting close, you know. When I talk about the nature of something, what, what are we talking about? The essence and what and the essence is is your 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 desires, right? What you desire, um, your character, the characteristics that make you human. All right, um, the human being. Some part of the being having a human nature is you have a personality, you have a will, you have emotions, you have desires, right? You you have the ability to choose, which is your will. That's all part of your nature. All right. When you become a new creation in Christ, what does God do with your nature? He kills the old one and he gives you a new nature. Nature. And what does this new nature want to do? What do you, honestly, goodness, deep down inside, what do you want to do? You want to please God. That's a new nature, folks. That's not your old nature. Because your old nature says, fool you on God, I'm going to do what I want to do. Your new nature says, I want to please God. God transforms your desires. He transforms your emotions. He transforms your will. Now, all of a sudden, you can please God. When you were a pagan, could you please God? Do. Not only could you not please God, you had no inclination to please God. But now that you're born again, you want to please God. You want to honor Him. You want to do the right thing. 
All of us in here, if we could, we say, I would like to, from now on out, never sin again. I'd like to be perfect. I'd like to be holy. I'd like to please God. I would like to never make a mistake. That's your nature. That's what you want to do. That's new. And God gives you that. He transforms you. Now, all things are of God. I'm looking at time. Make sure I run out of time. Who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Um, reconciliation is used a lot here. What is reconciliation? It's a legal term, actually. It's a legal term. It's it's to bring things. When when I say uh, let's reconcile our watches, what are we doing? Matching them up, right? When you reconcile your checkbook, what are you doing? <laughs> Making sure that the amount that's in your checkbook is the amount in the bank, because it's the bank's account, right? All right. What does it mean that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? In what sense did God reconcile the world to himself? In the actual sense or in the potential sense? Then everybody's saved. Everybody's going to heaven. Potentially, right? Two parties. If two parties need to reconcile, what needs to happen? Both need to agree. All right? Think about it this way. And I know I'm a horrid, I'm a horrid artist, all right? But here's God facing this way, and here's the world facing this way. There's our eyes, whatever, I don't know. We're, we're opposite. We're looking in opposite directions. We have no desire. There's, there's no meeting of the mind. What did Christ do? What did Christ allow? Christ allowed God to turn back. He gave God, God was able to turn back because now the ability of the potential for reconciliation was there. There's a way back. It doesn't mean that for me to be reconciled to God, what do I have to do? From the human perspective, what do I have to do? I have to turn around. If John and I get in a big fight and we have a big falling out and we just can't stand it, we hate each other's guts, all right, how are we ever going to become friends again? Well, John's got to change, right? Let's say, let's say I did something horrible to offend him, all right? I did something really bad to really offend John. What does John have to do? He has to be willing, right? You have to learn, but 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 for us for reconciliation to occur, John has to be willing to be reconciled to me. And then what do I need to do? I have to apologize and be willing to reconcile myself to John. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? to bring the world and God back into alignment. Because of Christ's death, God was able to turn to
to the world in a sense. The, the reconciliation door was open. Why did Christ have to die? Without Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. There's no hope of reconciliation. And God is now, through Christ, offered. God is saying, I've given you my son. I've paid the price. Now it's up to us to, from the human perspective, to turn around and say, I understand. Forgive me. I accept that. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And we are ambassadors, verse 20. For Christ is what God we're pleading with through us. We implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We're an ambassador. We're coming, and, and the idea here is a warring nation. We are begging you. We are ambassadors begging you to be reconciled to Christ, to be reconciled to God. He's made it available. He's offered the olive branch. He has taken the first step. Now it's up to us to take the message of the gospel to people so that they can be reconciled. Now, again, this is from the human perspective. How does someone become reconciled to God? God opens their heart. God brings the light of the gospel. They turn, they believe, they repent, they respond. But God has made it possible for us to be reconciled to him. And what, it, what the idea there is to bring two people who are mortal enemies back into relationship. And that's what salvation is all about, restoring our relationship to God, being reconciled to him. And in verse 21, for he may, and how is reconciliation possible? Well, he made him to, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we may become the righteous of God in him. This is the great transaction. We'll talk about this next week to pick it up. This verse is just too cool to give two minutes to. But the whole point of this passage is, the whole point of this verse is this. Christ took our place. That's the point. That's what substitution is all about. Now, you hear some of these wackos on TV say, well, that means that Christ became a sinner. No. Christ did not become a sinner. Christ did not go to hell and suffer in the fires of hell for us, as Copeland and Hagen and them preach. No. That goat that, that Moses, that Aaron laid his hands on, became the scapegoat and went in the wilderness, did that goat become sinful? No, but what happened to that goat? Symbolically, the sins of Israel were placed on that goat. That's what it's talking about here. Christ did not, in essence, become sin because he could not become sin. That was not possible. But what Christ did is he took upon himself the guilt, the sin of all of humanity. Now go figure that one out in your quiet time. And the Bible says God treated Christ as though Christ committed every sin that we committed. Imputation. It's not that Christ became sinful, but he took upon himself the sin as the sin bearer. And Christ suffered the separation from God that we would suffer. And you know what? We will never figure that out because we don't know what it was like to be theon with God face to face from eternity past. We'll never understand. The anguish of the cross, folks, was not the pain, not the nails, not the bleeding, not the whipping. That was not the pain of the cross to Christ. It was for three hours he was terrified to his soul that he was separated from the Father, that God turned his back on him. That was the anguish of the cross. 
we're out of time. We'll pick up next week. Father, face to face. Face to face with God. Father, we thank you for this time and thank you for studying your word. Thank you that you've opened it to us. Help us to remember it and pray that it would change our lives in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.